All right, I'm just going to say it. That is one of my all-time favorite songs. Love, I love that song. I never tire of it. When you think about what you just sang, you are perfect in all of your ways. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Here's how you sing that. You can only sing it by faith. You sing it by coming to know the one who is, in fact, a good, good father. By coming to trust the heart of the one that you fall in love with. Who has it all figured out even when it is not figured out by you. And it's confusing and it leaves you with questions. As you come to know this God. You come to be able to sing even when you're singing in the dark. And you can't see any light at all. You know what? You are perfect in all of your ways. I love what Matt said. God hasn't just come to us with a bunch of propositions. He's really in the person of Jesus. He's come to us with himself. And he himself is the answer to our questions. And you guys have been so helpful. As he said at the beginning of our service a couple of weeks back, just before we all went away for Thanksgiving, and now we're all back, so I hope you had a great trip. Uh, But we asked you guys to give us questions, to give us questions about life and about God and about the Bible and about faith and about Jesus and about Christianity, about whatever else it is that you're interested in, but not just to give us your questions. We said, look, as interested as we are, and obviously we are, in your questions, we're also interested, maybe even a little bit more interested In the questions that your friends have, in the questions that the people you work with have, in the questions of the people in your family who might not share your faith, who might not believe in God or know what to think about him or faith or the Bible or Christianity or just have some really big, compelling questions about life. What questions do they have to add them up and send them to us? And as he said, we've had like an avalanche of questions, which is totally amazing. And what we're doing is we're taking these questions and we're placing them into categories and we're discovering that there are quite a few different categories. And what our plan is, is to take sort of the 21 questions that rise to the top and encapsulate a bunch of the other questions that are in each one of these categories and then to deal with them here on Sunday morning and to try as best we can to answer them from the perspective of the Bible, which, if you think about it, uh, is really where we need to start. In other words, if we're going to answer questions from the Bible and particularly from the life of Jesus as we find it in the Bible, we probably need to tell you why you ought to value the opinion of the Bible and value it more than any other opinion, more than mine, more than yours. Why should we listen to the Bible? And hey, Tom, start with this one. How do we even know that what we have in our hands today when we hold the Bible in our hands Even is the Bible, because isn't it true, Tom, that we don't have any of the original documents? That's true. All right, and isn't it also true, then, that what we have are therefore then copies of copies of copies of copies of the original documents? That's also true. So then how do we know that the Bible that's been constructed from the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the the original documents, which we no longer have, reflects what the original documents actually said and and does so accurately? Well, the answer to that is threefold. One, because of how many copies we have. Two, because of how old a lot of those copies are, and therefore they're very close in proximity to the date of the original writings. And three, because of the stunning, overwhelming agreement amongst all of these different copies as to what the original copies or the original documents said. Guys, the New Testament, for example, is the most well-attested ancient document in the world. And that's not just a Christian opinion. In other words, if you Google it, you know, it's not going to say, well, the Christians believe that, but let's tell you what the scholars think. Now, everybody agrees on that. It is an established fact. Let me give you some examples. 
Homer's Iliad. You heard of that? It's a great book. Homer's Iliad was written about 800 BC. We have 643 copies of that ancient document, the earliest of which is dated 1000 AD, which means, practically speaking, that the earliest copy that we have of Homer's Iliad is 1800 years after the original document was written. And nobody quibbles about what Homer's Iliad says. Histories of Herodotus, great book. It was written about 430 BC. We have a whopping total of eight copies. 900 AD is the earliest copy. 1330 years transpired between the original document and the oldest copy that we have. Plato's Republic, honestly one of my favorite books. I've read all of these. I love Plato's Republic the best out of this group. Written around 400 BC, seven copies. 900 AD is the earliest one, so 1,300 years between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have, Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, another amazing book written about 400 BC. We have eight copies. 900 AD is the earliest of those copies, so 1,300 years transpired between the writing of that book and the earliest copy that we still have. Here's the last example, though I could give you a lot more. Aristotle's Poetics, written about 350 BC, 49 copies, which makes you feel kind of good after seeing some of the other ones. Earliest one, written about 1100 AD, so 1450 years transpired between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have. Now let's look at the New Testament for a minute. The books of the New Testament were written between 48 and 90 AD. We have 5,850 copies just in the Greek. If you add in early translations of the Latin, if you add in early other translations in other languages, we have as many as 25,000 different manuscripts that date way, 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 way back. The earliest copy of the New Testament we have is from 325 AD. So that's 235 to 277 years after the original. But we have fragments of books like, for example, of John 1 that date all the way back to 175 AD. So it's like within 100 years of the original writing. Guys, there are people who have devoted themselves to the science, and that's what it is. And they're not all Christian people. They're people who have devoted themselves to the science of comparing and contrasting these documents and of dating these documents and reconstructing from all of the different copies of ancient documents what the original writing said. And what they tell us is that of the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, only 40 lines have been seriously called into question, meaning that our New Testament is 99.8% textually pure and the 40 lines that are called into question don't affect any significant Christian doctrine at all. And that's why Frederick Kenyon, who's the former director of the British Museum and a renowned paleographer, he does this, it's what he does, said this, and I quote, he says, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Now, if you're listening to that quote carefully and you're really kind of working this through, uh, you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit of a stretch, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say that the Christian can hold in his hand the New Testament or the Bible is the word he uses. He's throwing old and together and have a textually pure document. But it's quite another thing to say that what he holds in his hand is the true word of God. I mean, that's really sort of the question. Why in the world should I believe that? Well, I think that you should believe 
that the Bible is the true word of God, first of all, and be patient with this one, okay? First of all, because it claims to be. I recognize that sounds circular. Really, I do. That's not lost on me. But it's also something that you would expect, isn't it? I mean, if God was to speak and record his words in writing, don't you expect that he would identify himself as the author of the book? I mean, if I send you a letter, I, I sign my name at the bottom. You know, it'll have my name and I'll, usually I'll sign it. And I'm identifying myself. I'm saying, hey, I'm Tom. I'm that Tom. And I am the one who is the author of these words in this letter that I'm sending to you. What does the Bible say again and again? Thus saith the Lord. And the Lord God said. It's just on and on and on and on. All the way through the Bible. It's saying, hey, you know what? I'm God. And I have authored a document. And this is it. It's my letter to you. So I think that you should believe that the Bible is the true word of God, first of all, because it claims to be. But then secondly, I think that you should believe that the Bible is the true word of God because it proves to be. And it proves to be, first of all, historically. So here's what I mean by that. When the Bible speaks about historical events, it speaks accurately. That's what I'm saying. And it speaks accurately even about some of the most bizarre things that we find in the Bible. And there are seemingly bizarre stories in the Bible, guys. They're just a really odd things where we go, wait, what? It's just true. It's fact. I'll give you the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if you know the story, but the story is of how God literally rains down fiery judgment from heaven upon this city and the city of Gomorrah. And frankly, all of the cities in this valley down by the Dead Sea that the Bible tells us before this particular event was lush and green and fertile and growing and full of life. But today, if you go there, it looks like this. That's not exactly lush and green and fertile and full of life. This is Masada. There's the Dead Sea in the background. You've got the mountains of Moab back here. And I'm going to tell you, it is rugged. It is a desolate wasteland. And it's actually pretty beautiful if you're traveling through in an air-conditioned bus with a lot of water, okay? You get a bag full of snacks, like you're feeling, you're feeling pretty right on. Go in there. We'll go there on our Israel trip next year. But, but you just get dropped off there, no water, no food. And you're wondering, am I going to make it? Because nothing grows there. It's just brown. It's just dead. So you read this story in the Bible and it's like, you know... That was a fertile valley. It was the most coveted land in all of that land. And then there's fire from heaven and it destroys these cities. And you think, eh, you know, let's turn the page. Newsweek, 10 days ago, published an article. I love the title. I'm going to read it to you. This is so great. Biblical city of Sodom, wait for it, was blasted to smithereens. That's the part I like. By a massive asteroid explosion. And what does this record? It records what all of these archaeologists from all of these different universities, we're not talking about a Christian study, we're talking about a secular study. It records the fact that right around the time period that the Bible claims that Sodom and Gomorrah and that valley and all the cities in it were utterly destroyed and decimated by a fire from heaven, that there was an aerial explosion that decimated this area called Tel al-Hammam and all of the surrounding region. Tel al-Hammam, incidentally, is thought to be 
the site of the original biblical site of this city of Sodom. It says that it was destroyed by an aerial explosion of an asteroid that completely scorched 500 square kilometers around the site, destroying the cities of this valley and, and I quote, stripping agricultural soils from once fertile fields and covering the Ikakar, covering the valley, inclu- including Tel Al-Hammam, with superheated brine of Dead Sea anhydride salts that were pushed over the landscape by the event's frontal shockwaves. You know what salt does to the earth? It makes it infertile. In ancient times, you know, they would sweep into your land and your enemies would defeat you. You know what they would do? They would sow salt into your fields. Why? So that you wouldn't come back because you couldn't grow anything there. Get the idea? It makes that which is fertile a desolate wasteland. And here's what I can't do. I mean, I hope you realize the limitations of a 30-minute talk, okay? I can't take you story by story, even through some of the more bizarre stories that we find in the Bible, and show you all that archaeology has said in support of what the Bible says. I can't do that. But what I can do is tell you that in archaeology, the Bible has found a friend. It has found a friend. And if you go on our website and you look for Truth Unearthed, it's a class that Sam Smith, our pastor of education here, did a while back on these kinds of things. Brilliant, amazing. You can watch it online. I think you'd find it very helpful in this regard. But my point is that I think that you should believe that the Bible is the true word of God because it claims to be and you would expect that. But then also because it proves to be. And it proves to be historically, but not just historically. It proves to be prophetically, and there too you would expect it. If God spoke, if God then recorded those words in writing, then what God said about what would happen in the future, you would expect, if in fact it was God's word, would actually come true. So, for example, the Old Testament, which is written anywhere between 400 and 1400 years before Jesus Christ is even born. All right, the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, it talks about the Deliverer, it talks about the King, the Christ who would come. And it gives like 350 very specific prophecies about him that when you get to the New Testament, you find are precisely fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And here's what Christ could not have done. He couldn't have gathered up all of these prophecies from the Old Testament and then, you know, kind of created a life plan by which he then fulfilled all of them. And I say that because quite a few of them, like where he would be born and how he would die, were completely outside of his control. It's like you realize, oh, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I wish I had known this earlier, you know, like could have saved myself some time. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem, but you see how that works? You don't choose where you're born. You're just born. I mean, can you picture Jesus reasoning it through? Hey, you know what? Somehow, in order to create the biggest fraud in the history of humanity, at the cost of my life, gaining nothing, I need to somehow figure out how to get the Romans to crucify me. Because that's what has been prophesied of the Christ. I mean, that's when you look for a new job, right? I mean, that's it. It's over. But I want you to think about this. David writing Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus is born and 300 years before crucifixion was even introduced into the world by the Persian Empire as a form of death, graphically describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ right down to the piercing of his hands and feet. 
right down to the crowd that encircles and mocks him, right down to the fact that they take his clothing, his garments, and divide it amongst them and cast lots for who's going to get him. thousand years. Crucifixion doesn't even exist when it's written. I think you have to account for that. So I think that the Bible is reliable. And you say, well, you know, maybe Jesus isn't the one who called out all of these Old Testament scriptures and then arranged his life in such a way as to meet them in. Maybe that's what his disciples did. Maybe they were just so overwhelmed by what an awesome and amazing guy he was that in order to leave for him this great and amazing legacy of Christ and Savior of the world, they went through the Old Testament, they found all these prophetic statements, and then they created an account of his life that precisely fulfills them. Isn't that a possibility? Well, here's what that doesn't account for. It doesn't account for all of the other prophetic statements about everything else that the Bible speaks prophetically to that has been fulfilled. And it doesn't account for the fact that the followers of Jesus, all of them to a man, for the message of the scriptures about Jesus that they allegedly made up, lost their families, they lost their businesses, they lost their reputations, they were hunted as criminals, they were imprisoned for great lengths of time. They were tortured and beaten and scourged. They were brutally murdered and not one of them recanted. How could you even get one guy to do that, much less a whole group of people? Listen, we talk about the red letters in the Bible. You know, the red letters in the New Testament are the words of Jesus or whatever. All of the letters in the Bible are read and that they're all the word of God. That's our perspective. It's what I'm hoping you'll think about. But they're read for another reason, too. They are read because all these people who wrote all these words paid for it with their blood. I think that's something to think about. I think there needs to be an accounting for that. So I think you should believe in the Bible and that it is the true word of God because it claims to be you would expect that. But because it proves to be, and it proves to be historically, and it proves to be prophetically, but it proves to be internally. In other words, it's an internally consistent book. And think about the odds of that happening. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. It's written by over 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years. And yet, when you look at it, it it comes together, like, perfectly. It's hand in glove. It's like puzzle piece after puzzle piece, and it it forms a beautiful picture, frankly, of Jesus, and it tells one story, and that is the story of the sufferings and glory of Jesus. I'm going to give you an example. I've used it in the past, but I just think it's simple and it's helpful, and it comes right off the first two pages of the Bible when you go to the creation story, and I understand that that raises questions. In fact, a whole category. Got it. That's why we're calling this 21 questions, not one or two, Okay. But what is the story? You have a story of a sinless man. His name is Adam. Just follow the pattern, okay? And it is the desire of God for Adam to have a bride. So what does God do? He snaps his fingers. He makes a bride. Well, he could have done that, but he didn't do that. All right, so then God goes back to the earth. And just like he had done with Adam, he forms now, this time, a woman from the dust of the earth. And he breathes into her, and she becomes a living soul, just like he did with Adam. Is that that what he does? He doesn't do that either. 
What does the story say? The story says that God takes the sinless man and he causes him to sleep a deep sleep. And sleep in the Bible and sleep in my life and in your life, incidentally, is a metaphor of death. If I came in here today and you said, hey, man, I know you have trouble sleeping. True story. How'd you sleep last night? And I said, I slept like the dead. You'd like go right on. I'm so happy. That's what I've been praying for that you'd be able to do. That's fantastic. No, I didn't. But I wish I did. You, You know, I mean, that's the way it works. Think about what you do every night when you go to sleep. Because you create the conditions of the grave. I don't mean to be morbid, but but you do. You you turn off all the lights and now it's dark. You turn down the AC and now it's cool. You bury yourself in your covers, don't you? And you sink into this death-like state of unconsciousness that is sleep. We all instinctively understand these things. God has a sinless man. He desires that the sinless man take a bride... And so he causes the sinless man to sleep, a deep sleep, which is metaphorical of death. And then God wounds the sleeping sinless man by piercing him in the side. And it is out of the wounding of the sinless man, the taking of his rib, if you know the story, that God fashions a bride for the sinless man and he awakens him. It all takes place in a garden, by the way, to receive his bride and... He rejoices over her with singing. What is that if not a picture of Jesus? I mean, you get 1,400, 1,500 years later to Jesus. Who is he? He is the sinless son of God, the sinless man whom God would have a bride for, but not in that same sense that I've taken a bride. But when you get to the New Testament and it talks about Christians, the prevailing metaphor is that we are the bride of Christ, meaning we take upon himself or take upon ourselves his name, his reputation, his possessions. We become his, he becomes ours. We are eternally and inseparably linked and locked together forever and ever as eternal companions to him and to each other. We are the bride of Christ. It is the desire of God that this sinless man, Jesus, have a bride. What's it going to take for him to have a bride? To collect us up out of humanity. It will take that he sleeps the sleep of literal death. And by the way, when he's sleeping the sleep of literal death, where is he wounded? Up under his ribs, in his side. He's pierced with a spear from which flows blood and water. The very substance by which we are cleansed, saved, and washed. It's remarkable. Jesus suffers and dies. So that every barrier we've erected between us and God, all of the debt we've accumulated by living for ourselves as opposed to for him, can be paid for and washed away. He is laid in a tomb and on the morning of the third day, God awakens him in resurrection, which sounds crazy unless he is God, in which case it makes perfect sense. And he comes forth from the grave, which is in a garden for crying out loud. And he offers us relationship with our good, good father. Freedom and forgiveness, deliverance and salvation and joy. Okay, you see the pattern, don't you? Now ask yourself, how could Moses, who's writing this story 1,400 years before Jesus is even born, know that pattern? And if he's making the story up on his own, why in the world would he come up with that? A perfect man who has a scar now by which his bride comes to see him as more beautiful.
Look, and here's the deal. 30 minutes. I could take all of the different stories of the Old Testament, and I can show you that same pattern in every single one of them. So what are the odds of that? In my opinion, the Bible is its own great defender. There is no greater defender of the Scripture than the Scripture itself and its internal consistency. The fact that that pattern of the suffering and glory of Jesus is all the way through it pointing toward Jesus who comes is one that I can't get past. It's remarkable. So I think you should believe in the Bible and that it is the true Word of God because it claims to be. Got that. But also because it proves to be, and it proves to be historically and prophetically, and it's internally consistent. But then lastly, I think that you should believe that the Bible is the true Word of God because it proves to be experientially, in the experience and the real life of people. In other words, when the Bible comes to us, the Bible does not come as a book that just says things. The Bible comes as a book that does things. It renovates hearts. It renovates relationships. It renovates people. It saves, it delivers, it translates in such a way as to transform the hearts and minds and lives of those who receive it by faith and by the power of the Spirit of God seek to live it out. And it comes to us with a wisdom from another world that when we in humility employ it, we discover works. It's a remarkable thing. I've been a pastor for a long time now. That occasionally occurs to me. I mean, sometimes it feels like a year, and sometimes it feels like 100,000 years. I'm not... <laughs> Usually about 50,000, all right? So that's a... But over the years, I've met with a lot of people who have been dealing with a lot of regret, and I get to offer them the hope of Christ, okay? There is forgiveness for our failures. There's redemption for our failures. God takes them, and he turns them around, and he uses them to do good things that we can then worship and rejoice over. But in the end, there are always failures to do what? To follow the prescription that he's given to us in his word. And sometimes it's, you know, an ignorant failure. Like, I didn't even know it said that. Now I know. Who knew? Wish I had known that five years ago. Never once have I ever had anybody come to me and go, you know what? I so regret obeying the Lord in this area of my life. <laughs> Not once. The obedience has just brought so much slavery to me and so much addiction and so much havoc and so much misery and so much the Lord wants you to be free, frees you in Jesus and he gives you his word and it says if you want to know how to stay free, how to walk in freedom, then by the power of the spirit and fits and starts learn to do this, learn to obey this, learn to follow this. The first the 18th century philosopher Voltaire predicted that the Bible would become a museum piece within a hundred years of his lifetime. Okay, well, today, the Bible continues to be the most popular book in all the world. A hundred million Bibles a year, on average, are sold or distributed, given away, to people. The version, Y-O-U version, Bible app, which is amazing. If you don't have it, you should get it, has 300 million subscribers. The Bible is the best-selling book Every single week, it's just been excluded from the weekly bestsellers because it's kind of like, well, yeah, we all know that it's that, so we don't even put that in there. Otherwise, number one every week would be the same book. Think about that. I think we need to ask why that is. 
clearly it's not the most entertaining book in the world, although I will tell you it's a lot more entertaining than it gets credit for. It's because it doesn't just say things. It's because it does things. And it does things, I would submit to you, because it is what it claims to be. It claims to be the word of the living God. And you would expect that claim if God was to speak and then he was to record his speech. So what does an ancient Bible offer to me today? That was the question, really, that we set out to answer this morning. And, and my answer to that is that it has everything to offer you. It offers you Jesus. And in him, you find all your answers. So the one thing that I would encourage you to do, not even going to have to write this down, is start reading it. That's it. Where does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I would encourage you to go to the New Testament, to the fourth book, which is the gospel or the book of John, and just to start to read it. I would encourage you to read it without expecting to understand absolutely everything because you're not going to understand absolutely everything. And you know what? That's okay. Just keep reading it. Keep imbibing it. Keep taking it in. And more than that, join us on this 21 questions journey. Get our phone app if you don't have it. Turn on the personal worship pushes so that every Monday morning you get what the passage is that we're going to look at. And then on Wednesdays, you get these pastoral reflections, people on our staff who are interacting with these things and have insights and so forth that are sent out to you that help you to understand it better. And then come each week and, and let this be your prayer as you come to the scriptures and as you come to worship. As you come to a book that is living, that's what makes it different. Just pray, Lord, if you exist, then speak to me through this book and stay with it. Lord, if you exist, speak to me through, and Lord, if you exist today, speak to me. Okay, now tomorrow, speak to me through, the, and now again, speak to me through this book. And I think he'll give you ears to hear, and I think you'll find, oh, wow, that, that actually speaks to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the written word of the Bible. God, we are so thankful for it, for it tells us of the living word who is the Lord Christ. God, we thank you that you have not sealed up the heavens against us, remained silent and stayed away from us. But instead, you have, through the agency of people, written a story that proves to be accurate historically prophetically, internally, and experientially, and which bears your signature. You've written it in the blood of those people who have written it, and you've confirmed it in the blood of your own son. And so then, Lord, I pray that you would give us humility, and that through that humility we would come to your word, and that in your word we would find you. Do these things we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.